writer's block. It happens to everyone. And before Lee Bardugo wrote one of the most successful book series ever, it happened to her. When I got the idea for Shadow and Bone, I did not, you know, get this idea and then just race off to the laptop to start working on it because I thought, why bother? This will be one more thing I start and don't finish. For whatever reason, I said, I'm not going to write a good book. I'm just going to write a book. And I... (laughs) Good for you. That's the best goal to have. (laughs) I'm going to write a bad book, an unoriginal book, uh, uh, but it will be done. And then I'll know I can do it, and then the next one will be better. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Lee Bardugo is among the most celebrated young adult novelists of our time. She's the author of Shadow and Bone, a fantasy series with over 2.5 million books sold, and now a Netflix hit that became the most streamed show in the U.S. earlier this year. But getting to that promised land was not easy. Bardugo and I discuss all she navigated. An awkward adolescence, the loss of her editor at a pivotal moment, and an abusive relationship with a man that threatened to extinguish her career before it began. Yes, this is somebody who, when I was trying to write this book uh, in the evenings, would throw away uh, pages that I had written. Oh my God. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So let us start with your origin story. Your parents met in prison in Israel. Oh my God, how do you know these things? Um, (laughs) Girl, I look things up. Holy shit. Okay. Lee Bardugo was born of that relationship in Jerusalem in 1975. Yeah, my biological father, who I have no relationship with and do not care to have a relationship with, was uh, a radical. He was uh, the founder of the Israeli Black Panthers. Hmm. and uh, Was he black? No, he was not. Uh, I don't okay. think he really actually understood uh, how inappropriate it was to uh, oh. found said Israeli Black Panthers. But uh, <laughs> okay. I think he thought the name was cool. And, uh, you know, he was a 60s motorcycle riding hippie. And hmm. he would be put in jail before big government events and so forth because he had a tendency to get crowds whipped up. Mm. And my mom was a fan and went to <laughs> visit him in prison and brought him a chicken. And uh, yeah, that's where their relationship began. A live chicken? No, oh, okay. a broiled oh, okay, chicken. Okay. I love the idea of that being like, ah, as is traditional, one brings the live chicken to the prison. Okay, so she went for the the kind of bad boy, revolutionary wannabe or revolutionary. Yeah, 
I would say wannabe is an accurate assessment. But I, I look, I, I think it's fair to say I have a chip on my shoulder where my biological father is concerned. Um, he has <laughs> tried to, now that I have had a lot of success, has tried to make um, moves into my life and to claiming parts mm. of that success. And I've been very candid about that because I think I think it's a load of nonsense and it disrespects the fathers I did have. You know, my grandfather raised me when I was a kid and uh, is responsible, I think, for a lot of the way I look at words and the world, uh, for better or worse. And my stepfather was an extraordinary human being and, you know, backed me from the beginning uh, and believed I should be a writer from the beginning, which is more than I can say for my own self-confidence. Lee and her mom left without her father when Lee was just a few months old. The pair moved in with Lee's grandparents in Southern California. Where you didn't feel like you fit in, that you wore combat boots and listened to The Clash, but you felt like your <laughs> classmates were like from Sweet Valley High. I'm not sure that's a totally fair assessment. I, you know, I, I was just a deeply awkward and very angry Teenager. I don't think that's unique. Um, you know, I, I did listen to a lot of The Clash and The Pixies and The Cure. And uh, I, I love The Cure. Yeah, me too. Um, and I felt very alone in the world. I looked wrong. You know, I didn't look like a teenager when I was a teenager. I always looked older. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I had what a lot of kids had. I was lumpy and I had zits and, um, and I didn't fit in and I didn't speak the language of this new school that I was in. I just was in a state of constant friction with the world around me. And that was true at home too. Um, you know, as much as I love my stepdad, when my parents first married, who boy, we did not get on well. And it took years for us to find common ground. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so as you're going through this I mean, this friction that a lot of teenagers can relate to, um, as you point out, part of what you do is you read for survival. Literature becomes a place where you find refuge. Absolutely. I was having a very rough time at home and a very rough time at school. And I remember walking into our school library and some magical librarian had set out a table with a bunch of um, sci-fi and fantasy classics with a sign that said, discover new worlds. And you're like, hell yeah. (laughs) I was like, take me away from this place. So I picked up Dune and for all its problems, Uh Dune was exactly what I needed right then. It was a book about being smart and clever and prepared and, you know, a a drug addled teenage Messiah. But um, Mm -hmm. it was, I needed a world where being brave and smart was more important than being cute. As you're reading in high school and grade school to survive, what else are you reading? What are the places you find refuge? Stephen King was huge, which may sound strange, but that's true for a lot of kids um, because he takes shame and gives it form. Um, And I think that that is sort of the rooting element of so much great horror fiction. And specifically, there was a short story called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which was then made into a film Mm. that was my comfort read, which is disturbing because it's about (laughs) a man who is falsely imprisoned. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. high school, and who manages to break free of this at the end and also score points off of all the people who did him wrong, which is, I think, everybody's fantasy in high school. Um, you know, for me, I, I would ditch class to go to the library. Like, I was that kid. Because I just wanted to be in books. I wanted to be any place other than where I was. And that's also when I started writing compulsively. It was a survival mechanism. And I, what I was writing was garbage. You know, I was writing these sort of self-insert, like, uh, you know, fantasy stories about, you know, a beautiful, blonde, badass assassin. Like, this was my, <laughs> who, you know, who took no shit from anyone. Like, this... I was creating these dream characters who who were the an idealized version of who I wanted to be, mm-hmm. but who allowed me to survive a period of time when I was incredibly lonely and very unsure of where I would belong. And there's no question that that impacted the way I write fiction now, because mm-hmm. that experience of coming up against the world and the world not seeing you the way you wish to be seen. I think is a kind of central theme of of growing into yourself and of young adult books. Lee, your trajectory, it's it's a common one, which is that it took you a couple of decades to see yourself as a novelist. Um, and you did a lot of other jobs on your way to kind of embracing that identity. Uh, you did makeup. You were a makeup artist. Uh, and you also wrote movie trailers. Yeah. Tell me about one of those. (laughs) So I would say writing movie trailers was actually the best day job I ever had. Um, I I was basically brought on because they wanted to pitch family and uh, female oriented films. And Mm. so they needed a woman in the room (laughs) to point to and say, so my job was basically instead of getting to do the, you know, in a land without justice Mm -hmm. uh, trailers, I was more like, Jenny was a girl who couldn't catch a break. Like, that was my beat. Romance. I worked on the Princess Diaries. Mia Thermopolis had it all, but only in her dreams. As always, this is as good as it's gonna get. I worked on Herbie Fully Loaded, uh, and it was a great job. It was a fantastic job. And you, and you find a lot of new ways to say, you know, being yourself is the way to find your path or whatever it is, but... <laughs> It, and, and, and look, I, I don't want to talk smack about that because especially as somebody who now has work uh, in media, I can see how influential those pieces of media are in terms of garnering audience. And it was truly a wonderful job because I got to write for a living. The problem was that when I was writing for a living in this way, it was like that muscle got tired. Mm. So instead of wanting to write creatively, um, I would sort of be burned out mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day. And essentially what happened was my father passed away. You mean your stepfather who had helped to raise you? Yeah. And I did something very stupid, which was I quit that job and I went to work as a makeup and special effects artist. Mm. And I wasn't very good at it, but um, what it did for me was it got me out of my head. It got me meeting a lot of new people pretty much every day. And it also created the situation where while I was on set working on somebody, my brain, I think my subconscious was working on stories. So... When I would come home at the end of an exhausting day, my body was exhausted from being on my feet, but I was ready to write. 
The book she wanted to write was Shadow and Bone, the book that catapulted her career. But it was not a straight shot from the idea to the page. Lee Bardugo had to overcome a very, very difficult situation. She says she was in an abusive relationship. One of your best friends, Michelle Chihara, you connected us with her. She brought that relationship up. And there's something that she said that I want to play back to you, okay? Sure. She has always been so brilliant and fierce and smart. Um, But she got into a relationship that really threatened to extinguish her. I mean, it it was not just like, they were incompatible. It was really bad for her. (laughs) Um, And it was not a relationship that valued her voice. I didn't know how bad some of it was Mm -hmm. while I was witnessing it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sorry. Got a little emotional hearing that. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is slightly embarrassing. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I didn't intend for that. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, yeah, it was a very bad time. Um, the reason I've talked about it publicly and the reason I don't mind talking about it now is because uh, my whole life I have been a uh, smart and uh, aggressive and opinionated lady. Mm-hmm. And I still managed to get myself into a relationship where I was um, belittled and um, and sometimes put in very dangerous situations um, mm-hmm. with somebody who had a serious substance abuse problem. And, um, and I had every red flag possible going into this relationship. I knew exactly this wasn't, oh, he was a, he was a dream. And then he suddenly turned into a monster. No, I, I knew exactly what he was going in. And as I told Michelle, because we we've talked about this and she's expressed to me, you know, that she wished she had said more or done more when mm-hmm. when when this was all going on. But mm-hmm. I was doing my best to hide the reality of this situation from everybody in my life uh, because I was very ashamed and because I thought I could fix it, I thought, <laughs> I, I can outsmart this. I can surely find my way through this labyrinth. Mm. Um, and also because I had to drive that bus off the cliff myself. And we have to, sometimes we have to go through a very difficult and dark time in order to come out on the other side of it. Um, and I did. And I'm very lucky because I came out of it, you know, as a whole person and, um, And with a book that was going to begin this new life for me. Mm. But when I left that relationship, I had, you know, I I was lucky. I had my mom to run to. She, you know, put me up in her house for a very long time. Um, She let me borrow money so that I could open a bank account. I had not a dime to my name and not even a credit card in my name. And which was deliberate, you know, (laughs) these these are isolating tactics. Mm. And you mean by your partner to suggest you shouldn't have those things to be able to stand on your own? Yes, this is somebody who, when I was trying to write uh, this book uh, in the evenings, would throw away uh, pages that I had written um, and who did not support me in that at all. Can you explain a little bit what kept you 
in a relationship that was actively attacking your passion? I had no self-confidence at that point. I was, and this is actually a fairly complex thing to untangle, but I, I, when I hit, you know, 30 and had not, uh, had not done the things that I thought I was going to do, I, instead of asking myself, you know, okay, well, can I learn about process? Can I buy a book about how to write a book? I was, you know, getting by by going from day job to day job. And, um, you know, you have to pay bills and life interferes. And then you wake up one day and you think, I've just been treading water. In the meantime, I end up with this person who obviously I, you know, I I truly believe we choose these partners or they choose us for a reason. And, you know, you publicly get involved in a relationship. You talk about the relationship one way with your friends um, and you, or at least I um, was very invested in, I had made this choice Mm -hmm. and I had to, abide by it. And I had to find a way to make it work. And it's like a sunk cost at some point. It's like, I'm this, I'm in this far. I need to make it work. A hundred percent. Sometimes when we haven't dealt with our own emotional burdens or our past or our own concerns about how to build ourselves up, we look for someone who will um, do that work for us, who will essentially, Absolutely. you know, this is why people join cults, right? Take my will away, take my decision making away. And when I got the idea for Shadow and Bone, I did not, <laughs> I did not, you know, get this idea and then just race off to the laptop to start working on it. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, why bother? This will be one more thing I start and don't finish. Mm. Lee, are you able to explain? What then helped you to leave that situation? I would love to be able to point to when the switch flipped. I can tell you that I was on the phone with Michelle and I was making the bed and I was crying because I was really struggling. I was really deeply, deeply depressed. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out what to do next. And she said, well, you know, reapply to the MFA. You should be writing. And um, I thought, I don't want to go back to school. I want to write a book. Hmm. And and I got off the phone with her. And for whatever reason, I said, I'm not going to write a good book. I'm just going to write a book. And I... <laughs> Good for you. That's the best goal to have. <laughs> I'm going to write a bad book, an unoriginal book, uh, uh, and and but it will be done. And then I'll know I can do it. And then the next one will be better. And it's, I just want to pause you for a moment just on, on that setting that goal. I'm going to write a book. It can be a bad book. Was it that, Lee, at that point, you just needed to know that you had the discipline to get through something hard? Like, why was that goal so important? I will say this. I did not know how to deal with failure well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I do believe that the act of writing a novel or really doing anything worthwhile requires the experience of failure repeatedly and the discomfort mm-hmm. of being bad at something before you get good at it. And that was definitely not a skill I had. I came from a family where you did not do things you weren't good at. You didn't risk embarrassing yourself. And I didn't understand that. And I thought if you're calling, right, you're, if this was the thing you were meant to do, it was supposed to feel good, not 
uncomfortable and weird and awkward and bad, and which often writing does. And it's so interesting, right? Because that's like a myth out there. But in fact, the things that give you the deepest gratification often hurt like hell in the process. They do. Lee, can you distinguish between the bad type of pain and the good type of pain? Like <laughs> the thing that hurts that is an abusive relationship versus the thing that hurts, which is cultivating writing muscle. Because they're both pain and it can actually be kind of confusing. I would qualify one as pain that undermines you and one is discomfort that make you're, you are stronger from it at the end of the day. One is building you up and one is tearing you down. And I don't want to say that we that there isn't pleasure in the writing of a novel. There is. You know, there are days when you feel like an absolute genius and the story just unspools in front of you. But there are many days when that's not the case. And you are aware that what you're creating is not good enough. But you have to create the not good enough before you can revise it into something you can actually be proud of. And I certainly didn't have a, an understanding of that as I moved into this. But what freed me was that I uh, had released this part of my brain that thought this had to be perfect and that I needed to write the great American novel all of that went out and the editorial voice in my head that said, you know, what you're writing is drac, it's terrible, it's not good enough. Instead of trying to fight it, I'd say, yeah, you're absolutely right, but nobody's ever going to see it. So I'm just going to keep going. After the break, Shadow and Bone, the story of a young woman with power and the man who tries to strip it away. Was this story at all a fictionalized version of the relationship you were in? Um, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would say, you know, he wishes. <laughs> You're listening to Art of Power from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Lee Bardugo's debut novel, Shadow and Bone, is set in a fictionalized czarist Russia. The heroine is Alina, an orphan teen who has a superpower. She can summon the sun to cast out darkness. When I was young, I was afraid of the dark. When I got older, I learned that darkness is a place and it's full of monsters. And she's torn between two love interests. Both of them are super hot, but one of them, a character called the Darkling, is bad news. This is my power. But now I control it. Was this story at all a fictionalized version of the relationship you were in? A little bit. (laughs) I mean, 
I guess I would say, you know, he wishes. Like, the Darkling is far more powerful and sexy than the person I was in this disastrous relationship with. Um, but I do think that that dynamic of somebody trying to claim your your power, your authority, your work for their own is absolutely embedded in that story. And I think also the idea of trying to make yourself smaller in order to find a place that you belong or someone you belong with mm. is very deeply embedded in that story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To be afraid of your own power because it turns off the person you're trying to attract. Not just, not just your own power, your own size, your own volume. I had spent my whole life being told I was too loud, too big, too much. And then I met somebody who seemed to agree with that criticism. And I bought into that, that I was the bad guy, that I was the difficult one, that I had to to become someone else in order to be palatable, successful, lovable. Mm -hmm. And I think every book I've written has become increasingly bold in its desire to uh, erase those notions of self from women and from anybody reading and, and, and finding, you know, comfort in these books or escape in these books or inspiration in these books. I want them to come away feeling bigger and badder than they were before. Mm. And Mm. to be clear, I do not think that writing is therapy. Therapy is therapy, Mm -hmm. but there's a, an essential part of creating something that makes you, feel good and to look at that stack of pages made me feel like I was becoming who I was meant to be so I think it's natural that those that the stories in these books are imbued with that while reading Shadow and Bone I was struck by how sexuality can work as both a wound and a superpower. There's a character named Jenya. She's a magical makeup artist slash plastic surgeon who can make people beautiful. She is flawless, though beneath the porcelain skin are scars she can't heal. As a child, she was raped repeatedly over many years by the king. She ended up in his hands because the Darkling gave her away as a gift. And she has been coached and encouraged by the Darkling to believe that she is a soldier and that the suffering she endures is going to be one of the things that helps him to build a new future. And um, the first reader who got a tattoo from one of my books got one of Jenya's lines, um, which is, I am not ruined, I am ruination. And... And I knew that he was speaking from a place of experience. And that is a an almost holy thing to, to know that you have shared experience and that and that they have taken something from your work that helps them is is so beautiful mm-hmm. and so unexpected. You have such a great understanding of story the structure of stories, what drives story. Is that innate for you or is that something you've really had to work on? It's not at all innate for me. And in fact, that was a big part of understanding how to write a book. I am somebody who needs an outline in order to work. I have to know where I'm going. I have to know where the big moments are in order to maintain momentum. And what that also allows me to do is write the things I know 
leave placeholders for the things I don't know so that I can go back when I know you learn so much by getting to the end of a book. Mm. I had had this bad habit of having all this momentum and excitement and it would get me through the first act, but that's the start of the adventure. And so learning how to write to a big moment in the middle at the midpoint, learning, you know, to, to understand what I needed from the darkest hour, those things were incredibly helpful for me. And I, I don't stick to them um, zealously mm. now. Mm. I let myself play around a little more. But for me, that's like a, a, a security net. You wrote the book Shadow and Bone in six months. Yeah. Explain that. That sounds like a remarkably fast timeline for a person who was having a very hard time, uh, you know, getting past the what you refer to as the I want to die phase. <laughs> At that point, I was uh, coming up on 35 and I had really reached a point where I thought, well, that's it. You know, the, the, the tombstone is going to read had potential. Like, <laughs> it, uh, because, because we're taught, we're taught that, that this is death, right? To, to, to have reached At the advanced 30. age of 35. Exactly. You're practically <laughs> dead, you know? So we are really taught by culture that, that anything. No, and it's I, so true. It's so true. At 30, I thought that I was like geriatric. I guess right? you. yeah. you've had the yeah. expiration date. You're not interesting anymore. No one's going to want to, to hear from you to read your stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this all of the time in uh, aspiring writers who I come into contact with at signings and, and online who believe when they've hit 18, 20, 25, that, that they're doomed. And mm-hmm. I find that grotesque. And this is definitely a lie that has been created by the way we approach culture and achievement, particularly among creative people. Like how, how it, like you're fascinating if you sell a book when you're 18 and you're fascinating if you sell your first book when you're 85, but all that middle ground, you, you might as well be dead. So I really bought into this. And when people say, like, what is your advice for young writers? You know, if you could just cross out that young part, mm. and, you know, that is my first piece of advice to write. Don't stick to this notion. Oh, I love that. That's so liberating, Lee. That's actually helping me too. Thank you. Good. That's- Put me in your acknowledgments. <laughs> for sure. For sure. For book two, I will. Shadow and Bone was released in 2012. Again, it's her first book. She's coming out of nowhere and making her splash in the literary Lee world. Bardugo, who has been a copywriter, has been a makeup artist, who Hello and guten Tag. Ich bin Lee Bardugo. Ich freue mich riesig, dass Grisha in Deutschland herauskommt. And she got the highly coveted distinction of making the New York Times bestseller list. Do you feel on top of the world, by the way, when you are on top of the world? No. I'm a disaster artist. I always think something horrific is about to happen. So so you um, can't even enjoy the high high? No, I've gotten much better at celebrating, and I certainly did celebrate that. But I I guess I want to say this. I think this is important. Um, You know, Shadow and Bone hit the bestseller list, but it was only on for a week. It was a one and done. That's that's what we call them when, when you list for a week and then you're gone. And I truly believed when I hit the New York Times bestseller list that I would be anointed in some way, right? Like that my life, I, I, and it, it is embarrassing to admit this, but that suddenly I people would know 
Like I would have like a little badge <laughs> that, that lit up wherever I went that would say New York Times bestseller and that, you know, James Patterson was going to call me up and invite me to the clubhouse or something. And, uh-huh. and I didn't understand. And I think it's important to understand that that it's yes, it is a, a wonderful thing. It helps you sell books. Your publisher can put it on the cover, um, but it does not make a career. Yeah. You know, Lee, what you're saying, it's just so, it reminds me of this theme that keeps coming up in Art of Power with so many of our guests, I'll say most recently with Stacey Abrams, who makes the point of there is pretty much rarely, if ever, any decisive victory in life. Like, Mm. we don't have decisive victories. Those are very rare. (laughs) The the principle in life is you got to keep on going. You know, that's right. I mean, at the end of the movie, you know, mm-hmm. celebrate, freeze frame, roll credits. But right. that's not that's not how our lives work. Right. And um, and and it 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 is essential to know that if this is the life you want, that if you want a creative life, your ability to continue to create, regardless of the situation that you're in, is what is probably most fundamental to your career. It's not just one book selling or one series selling. It's continuing to generate quote unquote content to, to make art even when things are difficult or bad or challenging. Lee Bardugo had one such moment, a specific challenging moment in which she knew that through no fault of her own, all she had built could be obliterated. Following the initial success of Shadow and Bone, Lee did not take a break. She put her foot on the gas, publishing a book a year. We're right now with Lee Bardugo. Hi. It's so nice to have you. In 2013, 14, 15, her novel, Six of Crows, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list and spent 27 weeks on the list. She was pulling it off, building a career, even a mini empire, off her imagination. It's a Game of Thrones meets Ocean's Eleven. That's the craziest combination of words I've heard a long time you know you would think that but i i really you know i look back on that time (laughs) i think i I, it was like a three-year period where i did nothing but work i didn't see friends i didn't date i didn't do anything but hustle and i'm not sorry for it and then just when she was at the tippy top of her game like a pro tennis player returning to wimbledon she lost her head coach, or I should say her editor. Lee's editor left Macmillan, the publishing giant. Think about that. The editor is the one who makes it all happen behind the scenes, who pours over every one of Lee's words, whipping each book into shape fast. The one who gets the corporate behemoth in lockstep so the art and marketing departments can do their jobs. Lee, who was in contract to write for Macmillan, lost her most important partner in crime. She was freaking out, but nothing about her publishing schedule changed. She still had to make her deadlines. Because we were on this terrible time crunch, it just wasn't the process that we had been in before. And I was fearful of writing uh, by myself. I spoke with your agent, Joanna Volp. She called it a real trial by fire for you. I'm going to play now how she described it. She has to continue creating, which is a process that she finds a lot of solace and contentment in, frankly. But then having to do it on deadline, under duress, you know, in du- like it's 
she's had to realize like, oh, that's the real work. Like you always think about those authors with a cabin in the woods being like, I'm just that eccentric genius who gets to write on my own timeline. That's actually not what it is. Uh, it kind of probably built that muscle up for her because she had to. And I think it's made her a stronger businesswoman as a result. Any reaction to that description? Yeah, I think she's right. It was really hard. Like, it was a really tough time. Um, this is the reality of publishing. You have very little power. Um, people will try to give you the illusion that if you have, that if you, if you would just blog more, if you would start a podcast, if you would uh, tweet all the time or have an incredibly beautiful Instagram feed, that that is somehow going to move the needle. And certainly there are cases where that's true, but most of the time you have very little control over how your book was going to do. You do the best that you can and you hope that your publisher will support that endeavor. And that is a terrifying state to exist in. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in a situation where you've lost a key partner in crime, you're working with this incredibly big company where you're one of thousands. You know, they're the, they're the only game in town for you, but it's not true vice versa, this huge disparity of power. And you have to write. You've got to write a book a year. You can't stop writing. Nothing changes about your deadline. Is there something, Lee, in that period of time that was so tumultuous that you've taken with you? I learned a few things. I learned that you need an army. <laughs> you need your own army, right? Or I guess your own special forces unit, mm -hmm. you know? I had two friends, Holly Black and Sarah Reese Brennan, who are both uh, exceptional writers and who literally sat down with me to help me fix the things I knew were broken in this book. Mm -hmm. And who I have relied on, who are my critique partners and who I've relied on repeatedly and who I hope uh, I have been a resource for them. So you have got to have people in your corner who you trust and respect creatively and who are willing to give you and give of their time generously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll say too, I think that there's something very valuable in learning to advocate for yourself with humility and humor but still being clear in your demands. Hmm. What do you mean by that one? I'm going to give it a specific example and hope that the wonderful people at my publishing house don't set me on fire. Go for it. But uh, I will give you an example. I had gone on group tours for many years and they were wonderful. But I had reached a point where... Um, you know, I saw that other authors were getting their own tours. They were getting to go out and there were optics attached to that in terms of the way you're perceived as an author. Mm -hmm. And I was told I would get, uh, you know, an individual tour. And all of a sudden that, that narrative began to change. And it was, well, maybe you could. And I remember saying very clearly, I'm going on tour by myself. Mm -hmm. I'm that, the, uh, th That's what's happening. Mm -hmm. So we can leave, we can table this discussion. I'm ready to live alone. I get it. You got your own space. I right. think I was much more careful in my early years as a writer. I was so afraid of being seen as a problem author. And I do believe that you can advocate for what you want very specifically without bitterness, without a sense of, you know, well, she got this, so I want that. You can advocate for the things you want powerfully and without fearing that label. Mm. And I think that that label of being a problem, of being difficult is real dangerous. And we have to be really conscious of, you know, you can treat the people around you with great love and respect and still advocate for yourself. 
I love these words that you're hitting when you say that, advocate for what you want with specificity, without bitterness. Because it just, it, it sounds true to me. It sounds, and you might not get it. You might not get it. No, you might not. Yeah. <laughs> you might not get it. There have been plenty of things I haven't gotten. Yeah. But you can feel good about the interaction. Yeah. Look, mm-hmm. when, when we move forward in these careers, we have got to nurture our relationships with people. Okay? And we have got to express gratitude. But we also have to be very conscious of the path that we want to take. Okay, So <laughs> I had a boss, I had a horrible boss, back when I lived in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he was going to break me down so he could build me back up again. And oh, I, I know, <laughs> he was a complete schmuck. But... <laughs> Hope you're listening, fella. And I remember, you know, my my parents, I would go, they would say, be nice, be nice, be nice to him. Just tell him what he wants to hear. And on the one hand, you could say, well, that was a bridge I burned. Maybe if I had been nicer, sweeter, more compliant, then I would have had an easier path and it would have been easier for me to leave that company. But what would I have lost in that exchange? What part of myself would I have compromised? And, and what part, you know, if I hadn't been defiant in the face of that kind of treatment, how much harder might it have been to get out of that bad relationship I ended up in later? How much harder might it have been to advocate for myself in later parts of my career if I had diminished and undermined? You're training the wrong muscles. Damn right. Last question for you, Lee Bardugo. These, oh my God. these muscles that you have trained, cultivating this machine gun rapid fire ability to write beautiful novels, these skills as a businesswoman, according to your agent. How does this prepare you to enter a deal with Netflix? Explain a little bit, because, <laughs> you know, I want to hear how you leverage that. Wow. Okay. This is a big question. Um, The fact that these novels had such a powerful fandom, and we were not the biggest, right? We didn't have the same kind of following that some uh, books that have been adapted had. I think that that really helped me keep a place at the table because they counted, they made their voices heard, and it made a difference in the way I think that uh, Netflix approached me and approached the show. Mm. You roll deep. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, anytime you, anytime you, you in, in embark on one of these endeavors, you are gambling. There's just no, there's no other way to put it. And you have got to choose your partners carefully, but even then you really don't know what you're getting into. And also if you want, I want to continue to write books. My future to me is not about being an executive producer or a TV writer. Uh, I, there are lots of projects I would like to do in that space, but I want to be a novelist. And that means that there are things that I have to step away from consciously if I don't want to lose my mind. And I don't, I love my life now. It's really good. And I want to be able to, enjoy it and enjoy this place that I've 
I've come to and to keep working toward what might be next. My lessons from Lee Bardugo. One, do not fear the shitty first draft of anything, the book, the startup, the campaign, and remember to complete it from start to finish. Make a whole shitty thing. Improvements can come later. Two, creative success is not a romantic ideal. If you want to set your own terms and live a creative life in whatever field, you need to be able to churn, 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 not just in a cabin in the woods. Three, advocate for what you want with clarity and without bitterness. Outcomes are important, and so are lifelong relationships. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Paloma Moreno Jimenez. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you stop, think, feel, work your brain a little, hit subscribe. Repeat, subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends and family. You can also let me know what you think. I want to hear from you. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arti411, A-A-R-T-I-411. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.